Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in High Fidelity. WrestleNomics Radio is presented by yours truly, Chris Harrington, your host, at MookieGon on the Twitter, coming to you live from St. Paul, Minnesota, here on February 11th, 2017. Hope everyone can hear me nice and clear. I'm doing the best I can today. We are here to talk about WWE financial results. They published their 2016 full-year results. They have... Uh, given us, of course, their Q4 results. They had the conference call, gave us their input for what 2017 would look like. And on Thursday, they had that call, they had that discussion, and uh, I've been trying my best to recover from some illness, recover from uh, just having a really bad, scratchy throat. So this is going to be a little bit of agony for me to uh, talk to you all, but I, I really am enjoying it. So I'm I'm looking forward to talking to everybody. Be on the air for at least an hour. Uh, if you want to call in, the number is 646-668-2171. Be happy to talk to any of the uh, WrestleNomics pundits that I normally get or any other fans that just happen to be out and about tonight. Nothing better to do than to call into a financial wrestling news show. I am home alone tonight. My wife is over in Chicago doing a uh, mock trial, mock uh, court thing. And so that means it's just me and the dog. So if if I suddenly disappear at any moment, it's probably because the dogs are barking like mad and I put it on mute. Uh, But otherwise, we're just quietly uh, sitting at home on a Saturday night, the night before the Elimination Chamber. And we're getting ready to talk about WWE 2016 results. And I've been spending the afternoon here just kind of going through all the results and looking at the information in there. And uh, it's probably most important to... Started off by just giving you the actual data points. If you haven't looked at the results yourself, I always highly recommend people read the annual report. That's the 10K that they file. Go to sec.gov, look for company finder, type in WWE. Then up in the uh, box, it'll probably be one of the first documents. But if you're still looking, you can type in 10-K. And that's going to be the annual report. And that that I always find gives you a really good sense of what's happening with the company at that time. And uh, is, is a somewhat honest look at the company, I find in terms of uh, some of their disclosures, especially around risks to the company or around why certain segments are up or down. 
a lot more um, cut and dry than when you look at the press releases for sure. So the company finished with record revenue, $729.2 million for 2016. So that's that's enormous. I mean, last year they're at 658.8. So they've gone up, you know, another 60, 70 million dollars, which is an impressive uh, feat for sure. Uh, it does say a lot, though, that revenue top line growth is going to always be high because we're converting people from being, you know, $45, $55 customers as pay-per-view to being $10 customers on uh, the network. And then moreover, the television rights fees are escalating year over year over year over year, and they're guaranteed to escalate uh, regardless of what happens with ratings. So, of course, we continue to see that that progress there. Now, just to put it in perspective, operating income for the year was $55.6 million, and net income is 33.8. And OBITA, the number they like to use, which is operating income before depreciation and amortization, is $80 million. So $80 million is a record for WWE in the sense that they haven't hit $80 million since 2011. It's been below that. It was 52 in 2011, 63 OBITA, 30 they had the year of negative 15.5 because they took – a huge hit the year they launched the network. Last year, they're up to 61.6. And this year, they're at 80.1. But it's important. You know, it's it's tough to dig into the financials and see this, maybe from the annual report, which only gives you a three-year look. But if you look a little bit deeper, you'll very quickly notice that, oh, my gosh, well, back in 2010, they did $477 million, but they made OBITA of $94 million. Uh, back in 2009, they had $475 million in revenue, and they did $91.5 million in OBITA. Uh, 2008 was $526.5 million in revenue, and they did $83.4 million in OBITA. And 2007 was $485.7 million, and they did $77.7 million on OBITA. So basically, they're tied with where they were in 2007. So it's been a decade here to get back to, to uh, kind of square one, which is interesting. And when you think about it from a percentage standpoint, that means they went from making almost 16% OBITA uh, back in 2007, 2008, or is it even up to almost 20 in by 2009, 2010? And lately, it's been down in the single digits. And uh, this year got up to 11%. Probably the two-year average is closer to 10%. So revenue way, way up, but profits are not way, way up. Profits are essentially just where you were a decade ago. They're up from the last five years, but it's transforming. And so when they say next year, we hope to hit you know, 70 million on uh, operating income and hit 100 million OBITA. Well, they've hit 80 million on uh, operating income before in 2010. So the 100 million OBITA will probably be a record for them, but they've been pretty close to that before. So uh, it's still transformative years here, which is, of course, part of the, the guarantee here is they get revenue coming from the TV contracts that will just increase year over year over year. And as they get... Uh, just more in uh, ability to monetize their live events. And, and that was definitely a theme of this year. So from a rating standpoint, they always start off their key performance indicators with their ratings. And it's important to note that for Q4, Raw was down 10%, down to a 2.22. And uh, SmackDown was actually up 17%, up to a 1.9. Meanwhile, USA Network as a whole was down 8%. So Raw is still declining faster than USA Network, though the USA Network average is only 1.18. So, of course, both Raw and SmackDown much, much higher. <coughs> On a um, top 25 cable ratings, uh, ratings are down 6% for the year, and that puts us at about 0.75. 
uh, for the what they call the top 25 cable network. So they're trying to show the picture that Raw is still way above in terms of uh, number of eyeballs on the property compared to anything else, which is true. Uh, but it is slipping fast, slipping faster than the USA trend, slipping faster than top 25 trend. And SmackDown going live, having the brand split is showing some great returns. So at least from that standpoint, they are making some uh, uh, business decisions that are helping them on SmackDown. And so it's interesting. And, you know, someone even brought up the question of, do you think in a few years from now, NBCU would be interested in expanding the amount of programming they have, you know, even add wrestling on Wednesday, maybe with an NXT and a 205 block or something of that nature. You know, 2019 is a long ways off. So I'm, I'm a little dubious that, you know, they're going to have as much of an appetite in two and a half years from now than as what they have now. But, you know, never say never. Uh, it could even happen in the, the meanwhile before then. Uh, just as they continue to add. And, you know, one of the big messages, in my opinion, coming out of the 2016 financial report was really the rise of NXT as, you know, they they got a little slap on their wrist during their conversations with the SEC and uh, amending last year's report. And then also in this year's report, really calling out how much revenue are they getting from NXT? How much revenue are they getting from the live events at NXT that they're doing. And so that was really interesting to me. And so, you know, the rise of NXT could suggest that maybe there would be a situation where they would look to put it on terrestrial television. That said, that's a really tough decision, right? Because part of the whole draw of the network is to put this premium, unique content on there. And once you dilute that by putting it back on the television, well, that's going to possibly cut in. And unless you're going to get some really good rights fees for that, then uh, I could see WWE really being reluctant to basically shoot themselves in the foot again in that situation. Speaking of shooting themselves in the foot, uh, one number that we got in the final, the uh, the annual report that we didn't have already was the pay-per-views number. Um, we were able to find out that pay-per-views this year did $12.6 million. That's down $8 million from last year's 20.6, which was already down $25 million from the 2014 number of 14.2 million. And then of course, in 2013, they still had pay-per-views as an active service. And that's when it was 82 and a half million. So when they still had pay-per-views actively, they did about $34 million OBITA, which is about a, a 41% margin on 3.8 million buys. And getting, you know, maybe 20, 21 bucks a, a buy at that time when you factor in the fact that they're getting a split, of course, with the cable companies. Now, that number by the next year when uh, it was only a $45 million business, so it was down to about 2.29 million buys and it was about a $20, million, $20 ASP average selling price. The next year, you know, the business fell in half to 20.6. That was 1.4 million buys and that's about a $15 price tag. So if you were to think this year at 12.6, I would estimate that somewhere probably north of 850,000 buys, uh, which is just, you know, coming off a, a base there of, you know, almost 4 million a couple years ago. They're at a fifth of that. <clears throat> and of course, most of those buys are coming from overseas. So it's at a much, much lower price point. You know, we're looking more at that, that 12 to $15 average selling price in terms of the value that WWE is getting. So uh, pay-per-view down to about 12.6 million. But the number I would kind of stick in your head there is that 40% margin. So they were getting a 40% margin on pay-per-view before they went there. Now they they have the WWE Network. And the WWE Network this year did $168.3 million uh, compared to 
eight million dollars the year before and then on their launch year did 69.5 so we're up another almost 30 million dollars year over year and the difference there being the obita on the network is much 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 lower than the obita was on the uh uh pay-per-views by themselves and so this is kind of an important piece to kind of just you know reflect for people the obit on the network is about 43 million dollars so 43 million dollars i'm doing open up my calculator right now 43 million dollars to go into a total of 180.9 because that's the combined numbers about a 24 percent margin so you're you're going from a pay-per-view business that was delivering almost 40 percent margin to a network business that's delivering a little over 20% margin, so almost half as much. So that's the really important point that I think is lost sometimes when people say, why don't we put the WWE television on the network and just go it alone? Or why don't you change this over, that over? And the difference is you need twice as many people as what you were getting on either the television or in uh, what you were getting for, especially pay-per-view, to make up that same profit number. And that's hugely different there in terms of, of what's going to happen to that business. And so that's why you need four to five million people probably on the network to um, might even be add additional just to make up that TV money that they're making right now. Uh, WWE Network in their documentation, they talk a lot about what do they consider a competitor. I thought that was interesting. They say, you know, we consider the subscription digital services from Amazon, CBS, ESPN, HBO, MLB, Hulu, Netflix, NFL Network, Nickelodeon, Showtime, YouTube, and many others. They never mentioned <laughs> – I'm dying here, folks. Uh, they never mention uh, UFC anywhere. You know, even when they talk about competition on one of their later pages, they just kind of say, oh, we face competition from sports leagues, from college games, but they never talk about UFC or the fight networks. Of course, they never talk about New Japan, and uh, TNA is is not nowhere to be seen, uh, literally. Um, WWE Network, of course, has about 7,000 hours now up, almost four times as much as they had in uh, February 2014. But as I was saying on the Wrestling Observer Live, when I got to do a, a quick spot with Mike Sempervivi and Brian Alvarez, I don't know whether or not you could correlate the spending and the hour gains of what's on the network to the gains of people. Uh, you know, most of the gains that happened in the first two years was just from the fact that they were literally moving it to new countries. Now we're getting into the point where you do see a lot of churn of people kind of intra-country making decisions about drop it, bring it back, drop it, bring it back. But what was fascinating, I think, also was just seeing that they did not think that they're really going to have any kind of a paid subscription bump between January 31st and March 31st. And, you know, all the all the numbers that they're going to get are going to come into Q2, into the WrestleMania quarter. And it just says a lot about, you know, you're putting Goldberg, you're putting Lesnar on this stuff. And yet, you know, you're just getting what you always got, which which kind of impresses me in a certain way to say, you know, doubling up on the number of pay-per-views we're doing per month. It's hard to say whether there was really less attrition coming from that. And uh, maybe that's someone something that you can call in with your thoughts if you have any questions or thoughts on that. It's 646-668-2171. Moving on, uh, like I said, the network segment, uh, the OBITA this year was $43 million, and I should I should coach that a little bit. There was about $15.5 million that this year they moved from a television cost to a, to a network cost. So if you take that out, then your OBITA 
goes up from, of course, being 24% EBITDA up to almost 32% because you're looking at it being closer to maybe a $58 million uh, segment, which is more comparable with last year where it was uh, almost $50 million, 49.5. Again, this has to do with these, quote, certain costs and expenses that are shared between networks and TV segments. And I think this might even be part partially due to some of the new programming they have. So when you have a 205 Live or Talking Smack or or the Raw, you know, those aren't really assets or costs that should be put against the television uh, segment. They should be put against the uh, network segment. And so there's a lot of that going on. And the same way they're recycling a lot of the television programming, like the Total Bellas and whatnot, onto the network at this time. So um, when we look at TV rights, that's, of course, you know, WWE's shining star and the, the hurdle that they also have to get over come 2019. And that hurdle is essentially that right now they do $241.7 million. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's going to be uh, the revenue right now. Someone is, is, is tweeting me and suggesting I add sound effects. And it's funny that he mentions that because I was actually thinking about doing sound effects originally when I, this was just going to be a, a pre-recorded thing and adding in the bing, 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 bing after each uh, revenue hit here. So uh, the dogs might provide the sound effects tonight. That's for sure. And uh, again, I want to remind everyone our first hour of uh, uh, WWE, E's 2016 financial report brought to you by WrestleNomics Radio is brought to you by Sprecher Root Beer. Sprecher Root Beer brewed in Wisconsin at a brewery. It's the root beer that your dad would give you. Sprecher Root Beer. Got one right here. It's also brought to you by Hot Water. Hot Water. Drink some. Keeps your throat soft. Ah. TV rights, $241.7 million. That's $120 million over $120 million profit. And that's shocking when you really think about that. That's a 40% margin that they're getting right now. Um, actually, a 50% margin that they got on TV. 43, if you take that 15 and a half, I was just talking about that the network had to absorb. So if you look at kind of years past that they were absorbing that and that the the network segment used to be only a 36 to 40% margin business. And now it's up to almost a 50% margin business. And it's just going to keep growing for the next uh, 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 two and a half years here. So that's just incredible here. Um, one thing that, you know, I thought was interesting is when they talked about how much they, they spend to, on programming. So they said they spent $28 million this year to produce non-live event programming for television. That's the Total Divas, Total Bellas, uh, last, actually two seasons of Total Divas. And then also includes uh, the network programming that they do like Holy Foley, Camp WWE, Swerved season two. And, you know, $20 million is actually a lot less than I would have thought those shows would have cost. So uh, in some ways that's not so astounding. They did say that this year they think they're gonna spend anywhere from 10 to $25 million on programming. And it's a little bit like Netflix, right? Where Netflix spends money to put all this original programming on, but at the same time, they already have your money because you're a subscriber. And so some of it is just trying to figure out basically how to keep you as a subscriber over time. So it's really hard to judge. Are these shows making their buck? Are they worth it? Um, you know, certainly they are are decent vehicles for keeping people uh, associated with the 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 company. So, you know, of course the Foley's being associated on Holy Foley gives them a lot of exposure and keeps that relationship fresh and new. But it, it is questionable sometimes whether or not if pay-per-views are the big draw, should they just concentrate on that? 
<coughs> We're going to be surprised if we make it through this, guys, but I'm excited. I'm also glad I got a tweet. Uh, you can always tweet me at mukigana.com, but I'm glad I got a tweet because I, when you're doing these kind of shows, you, you have these moments of panic where you're like, uh, what happens if, you know, I, I'm not in fact recording? What happens if I'm not in fact broadcasting to anyone? And while that's no different than, you know, how I spend many of my days just talking to myself in a haze, uh, it, it does frighten me sometimes when I have to go back and do this again. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that at least some people are out there hearing the, the words that are coming out of my mouth. Um, if we go back, uh, actually, TV programming, I should also point out, is down this year. So they said they spent $28 million this year. It says they spent $36.2 million last year. So in some ways... I guess we can be happy that, you know, they're not blowing their budget on that. Uh, as we go through kind of some of these other segments here, we might be surprised at some of the profit margins that they see on things, specifically the home entertainment section. So home entertainment right now, uh, they did $13.1 million. Uh, last year it was 13.4. The year before that it was 27.3. It used to be a much more uh, uh, profitable business for sure. And, you know, this year they still put out 24 home videos. They shipped 1.6 million DVDs and Blu-rays down from 2.1 the year before and down from the number of releases, too, because they did 28 million a year ago. But uh, you can see that home entertainment is uh, also being sold increasingly by digital content. And I think that's making a big difference for, for WWE because we see actually that the margin went up this year, even though sales were down by 300,000, the margin was up almost uh, 700,000. And so we saw a 40% margin on this business. So again, when you're thinking about the network and you're thinking of other things, home entertainment, the old school Blu-ray DVD business is still worth almost twice as much on a margin basis than what the network is. Uh, thankfully, I'm not going to be alone on this podcast. I do have a, uh, a special guest joining me. And in fact, this special guest I'm going to bring on the line right now is from area code 716. I'm hoping this is my friend, Brandon. Brandon, how are you doing? Hey, this is George Berrios. Uh, <laughs> you know, George, uh, are you super serving me by coming on to my podcast today? I am. Actually, George is out getting his haircut tonight. This is Brandon. That makes sense. Yes, that was. I was very amused that gran granularity appears to be gone finally from Berrios's playbook. But they were very clearly uh, fixated on this phrase "super serving" and the super serving that they do yeah. of the WWE universe. Yeah, and yeah. Did you hear that the big wheel keeps on turning? Yeah, I did catch that one as well. I enjoyed that. Yeah, Vince was a uh, Vince was pretty animated on this call here. We're of course talking about the conference call, the investors call that they do after each one of these earnings releases. And uh, Vince, out of the blue, kind of a props to nothing, just suddenly said, "Oh, and by the way, uh, the hundred thousand people that we had at WrestleMania that includes ticker ticket takers and ushers and food people, and we didn't actually have a paid attendance of a hundred thousand people." And so that yeah, was a real what, shock what to me to, to say that. Yeah, he, he said well, that. No, no, nobody asked him about that. That was just, you know, Vince usually does these opening statements at the very beginning of the call, or he just he volunteers that information for some reason. Yeah, I, you know, one thing that jumped out to me is when I was going on the SEC website to look up, you know, wait, look for the new filings, I saw that there was a whole bunch of commentary that they had where they were actually revising their 2015 annual report based on the the uh, letters that they were sending back and forth with the SEC and basically being told to be more granular 
in their, um, you know, uh, disclosures about, you know, what was live attendance, what was NXT's role on that live attendance. And so I almost wonder if someone gave them that kind of nudge that said something about, are you misleading investors when you talk about 100,000 people, but it's not 100,000 paid. And so they felt like they had to put that out there in a subtle way. I, I didn't get a chance to look at that. I know you tweeted about that, and I saw that. So, so they added that information about the NXT live attendance. Was, was there anything else that they amended? Not much. I, I haven't actually myself spent all that much time looking at it again today. Um, but it, it was just a couple little comments that they had back and forth. It was very unusual, and, and I thought that was really amusing. Um, but you, you bring up the NXT, and I thought that was really interesting this year that they said, you know, NXT had 189 events this year. They said they did 188,000 in paid attendance, which uh, yeah. when I did the math, uh, you know, it's 37 and some change for a ticket. And that means they averaged about 1,000 a show, which means they were making about 37,000 a show. And that means that they made yeah. about $7 million this year compared to and, last and year, 120 shows. Small. Uh, Florida shows that they run, which draw like who knows, when they're running in Largo or wherever they go, they draw probably like 200 people because it's the number. Yeah, because exactly. they gave you the, the total number of events, so like they're not doing that many. They're not doing what was it like hundreds? How, how many events again was it? Because I've ripped off this, I should know, but it's, it's a high that, enough number where it's like it, it's not just the, the non-Florida events. It's got to be the Florida events too, and somehow that average still comes out to be close to a thousand. Yeah, that was really surprising to me, too, is is I'm glad that they said paid attendance because there is that confusion over it. And, you know, those Florida shows, technically, I guess the small ones, I think they are paid. It just would be the Winter Park shows at full sale that might not be paid. Uh, so we would have to really get granular on this. Uh, there's that word again. Yeah. Try to figure that out. I'm sure we could because, find out uh, about that easily. Because, you know, there's people on Twitter have gone to the, to the NXT TV tickets. I want to say those are paid tickets, but I, I'm not totally positive. Exactly. Just kind of putting in perspective, a year ago it was 120 NXT events, 92 and a half thousand people, $36 a ticket, 770 people a show, 28 grand a show, and that would be 3.4 million in revenue. So they basically doubled their revenue year over year from a little under 4 million to $7 million. So I was really, I was, you know, I. At that point, I was like, wow, $7 million, that definitely puts NXT uh, uh, way ahead of uh, uh, Impact, uh, puts it yeah. probably, you know, it makes you wonder where ROH uh, kind of stacks up against it at this point. Yeah. Do, you, do you think it covers the cost of the, perf- the performance center? No. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> just looking at... That I mean, it's a good question. I was looking at the corporate and other spend. And so in 2011, they spent about $103 million on corporate and other. And in 2012, it was 116, 2013, 127, 2014, 150, 2015, 172, 2016, 178. So not all of that is performance center costs, but a portion yeah. of that is. And so, yeah. you know, when I'm talking about 7 million of incremental revenue, no, seven million does not cover your the number of contracts that they even have at the uh, performance center. I bet on an annual basis. Uh, I mean, a lot of guys yeah. are working for fifty k, but you know, you have your Nakamuras yeah. and your Joes and your Rudes down there, and I guarantee those guys are making six figures or more. Uh, so yeah, it's it's Definitely a mix, and and yeah. So I mean, it's 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 interesting, but I I just think that they're 
there is finally, I think, a real basis to say, okay, we should be breaking out these NXT numbers because once you're a seven million dollar revenue stream, you're larger and you're impossible. You know, you're you're larger than a lot of smaller brands and things that are going on right now. You're larger than, uh, you know, you're half the size you're, of the whole entertainment than all those business. Companies that they don't include in the competition section of the, uh, the annual report. <laughs> exactly. Um, other things that you know I was looking at was just how profitable licensing is. You know they they make forty nine million dollars on licensing and it's almost a fifty six percent business, and that sounds great until you realize that they used to make seventy to eighty percent on that business, and then when that THQ uh, bankruptcy happened, basically they moved to Take Two and they ended up with a much lower video game rate, and uh, they even said that this year was um, was lower on the obita because quote increased talent participation expenses so i don't know if that means that they put more people in the game and they had to pay more people out or because there's greater kind of unrest about the fact you don't get pay-per-view money anymore that they jacked up how much money they give out to people in royalties yeah maybe but i can go through all the numbers all the pieces but i would love to get your take on it what were what were some of the things that kind of jumped out to you as you went through the annual report well, besides, I mean, as far as the whole earnings release goes, I think the WrestleMania 32 admission was kind of the, the most exciting. Well, within the first 10 minutes, it was pretty exciting because I, who knows why he, he uh, admitted there was less than 100000 100, Like you said, maybe they had talked to somebody and it was related to that to the amendments that they had to make to the uh, to their annual reports. But uh, it it looks like, you know, we know pretty well that they're not going to come close to three million, probably ever. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's a, that's that's a kind of a big talking point here. Is so this year they ended at uh, a, a total number of was it one point four eight something around there for where they were on December thirty first, and they had another quarter where they gained three hundred and 47,000 people and they lost 388,000 people. And so we still had that enormous churn that is still a question mark of how much of that is just people literally canceling and signing back up. But at the same point, those are paid subscribers. So those are people that are putting it on a credit card. So it seems silly to say that those are the same people that are just trying to get the free trial all the time. Right? Yeah. I, I think there's probably some game in the system going on, you know, but I think there's most people, I don't know, just don't want to be bothered with it. They have to go through the the, the ordeal of you know, creating a new email account. Like we all know people who, you know, aren't that tech savvy that they're not going to, you know, just create another email account to save $10 or whatever it is. Um, so I think there's some of that, but for the most part, it's, it's probably unique. So we had a good question here on Twitter. Someone asked, uh, my good friend, Ken, Kenny H from uh, Gainesville asked, what price point would justify moving Raw and SmackDown to the network? And that's an interesting question. Um, like I said, it would take, you know, four or five million people at the current price point. So when you're doubling the price, you know, to 20 bucks a month or $25 a month, the challenge is, of course, we do expect to be some erosion from the people that just are not willing to take that. Uh, historically, though, we have seen that wrestling fans are highly priced in elastic. So my guess is you could probably get it to 20 or $25 and you would be in a good place. I, I don't know whether you could ever get to that same margin structure that the um, NBCU has right now. 
and to have the eyeballs on it to keep to be at that right percentage for uh, viewers. I, I don't see it until a couple years from now where you just have enough people adopting streaming services in a way that you could make a find a price point where it works. I just I think in some ways TV overpaid. And so there's no way you can come up with a, a mathematical equation for what the network has to be to get to replicate that revenue, even though the TV numbers were under what they originally thought that would be. What is your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think WWE wants to or should want to leave a bundle. You know, a, a bundle that has things like Raw and SmackDown in it, because then that's going to be you're going to be losing access to being a part of this more mainstream bundle where people can discover you. So I, maybe someday WWE Raw and SmackDown won't be on the USA Network anymore, but they should still want to be part of some greater bundle. Whether it's who knows what the future will bring, whether there's some sort of Netflix bundle or or whatever it is, they need to have whether it's some YouTube thing. They, they need to have you know, be part of a larger world where non-fans can become fans. And and you talk about the bundle, and that was something that came up at the end of the conference call where Brandon Ross from BTIG asked basically, well, you know, a lot of people offer their services through Amazon. And so you can get Cinemax, you can get HBO, you can get lots of different paid channel subscriptions through the Amazon platform. Why aren't you on the Amazon platform? And basically, they said, well, we don't get enough of our consumer information from that, so we're not happy with the revenue-sharing agreement and with the consumer uh, information metrics we get. And so that was, I thought, a really telling thing about WWE's kind of thoughts on on bundling with people, because specifically they are asked about the Crunchyroll bundle, uh, where they had done some kind of a kind of out of blue promotion where they just suddenly said, hey, if you want to sign up for Crunchyroll, you can get a certain number of months free on them. And I think they're also based on ML... BAM, but uh, that was an intriguing kind of conversation about just kind of the reluctance that WWE has, again, to being at an arm's length to what their consumers are watching or what their consumers are consuming or who their consumers are. And that seems to be an obsession with this company right now because that's one of the main reasons they use for why they dropped pay-per-view back in the day. So, so because if they had gone, if, if they sold the you know, through Amazon, they wouldn't get all those analytics is what you're saying. That's what it, that seemed to be what they were implying. Uh, as you know, I was listening to that that part of the call. Is that my my thought was that they were saying that yeah, they don't have a way of being able to you know micro target people anymore, and it's even questionable. Yeah. I don't know whether they get the viewer metrics of you know what were they consuming and when and how, and of course that's been one of the big investments this year for WWE is that they have really tried to to push up their data analytics and their consumer engagement, and. Uh, I was rather shocked when that number came out for January 31st saying there was only about 18,000 free WWE network subs right now, considering that they sent out that, that email blast to everybody about the free three months that you could get if you signed up. So it seems like very few people are taking advantage of that. Yeah. And, and that, that's, I think gets back to your original point about is 3 million a viable number, because it seems like, we're getting to the point where we no longer have large groups of people sitting in the free trial bucket, even at a very interesting point of the year. So does that imply that there's just, you know, a ceiling of maybe 1.7 million fans worldwide, less China? Yeah. Or maybe, maybe 1.8. I, I was looking at things. Today. I didn't notice that the free trials were that low. That's, that's as of January 31st, where there's 1.5 paid and, and you said like 70,000 free right now. I think it's, I honestly thought it was 18,000 people free. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pull up the report right now just to check, but uh, 
That was my recollection as uh, I calculated it out. Yeah, they had a much larger number on December 31st. And so that was the other part where I don't know if that's, yeah, whether it was just that the increase came from the fact that, I'm sorry, the decrease came from the fact that come Royal Rumble, all those 30-day subscriptions that were coming from Christmas, you know, gift cards and, and, and whatnot, that all expired. And so by Royal Rumble time, it was gone. Let's see here. You know, it was actually in the press release. Uh, 10, 10 for 100,000, 100,000 is pretty high. That's more than $70,000. Yeah, and the other thing that I thought was interesting during the the, the call was that essentially they admitted that they probably will still be running a free trial during WrestleMania this year. That, you know, they didn't learn their uh <laughs> learn their lesson you could say or they didn't they didn't feel like it was a bad uh, outcome which surprised me a little bit because i i guess in my mind i thought it was not a great outcome from last year's free wrestlemania numbers and i i do think a lot of people are misreading the fact that they moved over some of the expenses on from television to the network and so it makes the network look less profitable this year if you move those expenses back so you can have like to like year you'll see that they were more profitable this year as a whole but uh still they weren't wildly profitable by any means and uh it doesn't look like even all those free wrestlemania uh moochers you know necessarily moved over and became paying subscribers in mass numbers right so last year for me they reported Three hundred forty thousand, three hundred seventy thousand free subs. Third day after WrestleMania last year, so we think Jeez. free subs are going to be way lower for WrestleMania this year. It will be, uh, I think, but it's not not like they're getting rid of it. Yeah, right there it says there's free. Yeah, I finally found the presentation. It was part of the earnings presentation, and there's a slide that says uh, as of January thirty first, twenty seventeen, there's eighteen thousand free subs right now. And uh, and there was nineteen thousand last year. So for for whatever reason, it's it's really low right now, uh, and that that surprises me. Just because previous year, yeah, yeah. So that that was a that was kind okay. of a surprise to me. Just that we've dropped so much even from the end of end of December. But like I said, I think a lot of it is the holidays. You probably get a lot of people trying it out for the first time, and they become paying subscribers for a little while during this time. Um, Obviously, they're going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they just added $200 million of financing. And I think that's so fascinating that the, the company basically took a loan out for $200 million, put it in cash, and then started talking about on the conference call that some of it might be because they approached some people and people said, we looked at your balance sheet and you look kind of cash, cash poor. We don't want to partner with you. Um, I thought that was really interesting that they they kind of said it might be for strategic reasons of that sort that they were doing this kind of deal. But uh, the stock price has been just flying for the last two days ever since the earnings came out. So uh, the company is definitely got to be happy right now with with the way it's looking. Um, What were some of the other things that you took away from the conference call or from the uh, annual report that you were looking at in terms of 2016 results when it comes to attendance? Well, I don't know about attendance, but you saw on the key uh, performance indicators, AVOD views has plateaued. You saw that, right? Yeah, AVOD. So AVOD, for those that don't know, is ad-supported video on demand, so essentially YouTube video. And, uh, you know, the digital media uh, segment is 
basically where they get their money for advertising on YouTube. And they even said in the annual report that they got about $4.9 million more this year, just specifically from YouTube uh, revenue. And so, the, yes, this segment is profitable. It does about $4.6 million in profit and does about $27 million in sales. But it's a 17% profit segment. And, uh, you know, compared to home entertainment at 40% or live events is much higher. And it's probably the lowest, you know, percent segment of anything except for the network. So they're continuing to put a lot of emphasis on, on digital media. You know, it says in the report, the role of social media by fans and by us is an increasingly important factor in our brand perception. But, uh, you know, YouTube and Facebook is not necessarily driving a ton of money into their coffers today. Right. I was surprised they even put Facebook, you know, in, in those notes where they say this, you know, this is what AVOD is, YouTube and Facebook. I, have you ever seen an ad on a Facebook video? An ad, no, but it's possible that they're in. I've always heard that they were part. You know, when they were doing that video uh, streaming things, I don't know how Facebook pays for that. Whether that's who who makes money off of that in what way? Uh, because they were they were yeah. bragging that they were part of you know the companies that got to do that. But the stock is up to twenty two right. bucks uh, a day now, and just on Wednesday before close, it was at nineteen point three. So uh, it's up you know, quite a, quite a lot of money right now. I'm, I was really surprised at how positive everybody kind of took the news of how the company was doing um, for investments. The at media, the, um, yeah, please go. When we hear, you know, Barrios do these talks where he says, <coughs> yeah, the, the money will, you know, where the eyeballs go, the money will follow. And digital media seems to me like the most obvious place where like maybe someday we'll get so many uh, YouTube views that, will make so much ad revenue from those YouTube views that maybe that will become, I don't know, a, a prime stream of revenue for them. And about a year ago, it, it looked like who knows who knows where the, the ceiling is for AVOD because it was just going up and up, like at an exponential rate. Yeah. And now it looks like maybe we, we, we're at the plateau here. And so how are the, the how's the money going to follow the eyeballs now? I, I don't know. And, and you bring up a, a point to that uh, Laura Martin uh, from Needham, who – a longtime listeners know is such a big fan of mine. Um, she always calls in. She always wants to talk to Vince. And Vince. what she was talking about was Vince, Vince, great numbers, guys. We're doing it. Uh, but uh, Laura, Laura kept asking about uh, why, what are we doing with the AVOD for the network? What are we doing with the, the you know, the role ads before the network? Right. And they basically admitted that they were going away from that because they didn't find that uh, it was getting great penetration or what. And I think that's a reality of just saying, well, if you only have 1.5 million people and you've already made them pay for your service, uh, maybe it's best not to annoy them with banner ads or, you know, a pre-roll ads. And instead it's better to try to make the money off the YouTubes of the world uh, in terms right. of things. Kind of and just the there being to be more ads on the network. Also says something about what they must be getting for rates because it's not like WWE is choosing to do this because they think it's the way to super serve their customers. It's you know obviously a strategic decision of if you're making minuscule ad revenue and it's uh, something that is being counted against you possibly when you know you you ask subscribers why did you quit. Uh, it probably makes more sense just to forego the extra ad revenue if you're just not being offered the big money deals. So I, I found that really yeah. interesting too. That, that that we had that conversation uh, during the call again. 
Um, they talk about investments, of course, every year of what are they spending their cash on. So they mentioned they spent a million dollars on a fantasy sports content provider, a million dollars on a subscription-based sports media company, which we all believe to be Flow Slam or Flow Sports, I should say, and two hundred fifty thousand yeah. in a virtual reality platform operator. Um, and then the year before, they spent about half a million on quote a live the, event the touring business, reality. which I believe was that whatever those headsets were that there are pictures of Vincent and Stephanie looking around and couple years ago remember that yes i i i think that's one of our favorite you know uh, uh pictures to use on reddit you'll see all the time is is vince in the vr headset um right they talked about the lawsuits of course and you know that their cte is is basically what they're being sued over that they're being sued over royalties in their uh, corporate and other segment they talk about basically they're spending a whole lot of money on lawyers right now and that is true um but, of course, they, they even take a little jab at Kairos at one point in the, the statement where they say, we believe all of these claims are being generated by the same lawyer. Um, and, of course, they are confident that they will prevail. And for the most part, I think they're definitely going to prevail in the CTE suit. The royalty suit is is being thorny. I think we're at a fundamental disagreement about uh, what what it means to have a contract and what that contract applies to or doesn't apply to. And so once that ruling comes down to whether or not basically Buff Bagwell can take his WCW contract that talks about new media or whether he can take his WCW Inc. contract, which was the WWE organization he signed a contract with, uh, whether or not they those contracts apply to today's uh, WWE network, I have no belief that they're going to really uh, prevail. I wouldn't even be surprised if at some point, you know, they just throw a little bit of money and make him go away. But I think they're at the point now where they're just going to fight this one out. Um, it, it seems like it's too far for it to just go away quietly. Um, but I think that's you know, going to be the one. You know, this... um, if they lost that case, that, that would only pay out to people like Bagwell who have those old contracts right now, right? That's not going to be like retroactive to like where the, the, the people who are signed today are going to be able to get royalties off the network. <laughs> well, it kind of depends. I, they're using a very broad argument. And so they're saying, here's a person who has standing and here's why I think they would love to, you know, kind of grandfather everybody in. Uh, and so I think that attempt is going to fail, to be really honest. But you never know. It, it's really open, open to a lot of interpretations. I like I said, I, I don't think it's going to go very far, but I would say that lawsuit, probably even more than the CTE lawsuit, is the one that the boys in the back are probably more would care more about is the, you know, who gets the royalties from the WWE Network. Uh, uh, discussion is a lot more interesting to people today than talking about, you know, who's paying for traumatic brain injuries. Um, so that, that I just thought was interesting whenever you look at the lawsuits and just kind of how they, how they talk about things. They talked about uh, their corporate and other section. And they said, we spent 4.7 million in professional fees for company wide strategic initiatives, staff related costs of 3.7 for increased headcount talent related costs of 2.6 million in support of talent development and investments of 1.6 million in global branding. So I have no idea what 2.6 million <laughs> in talent development means, whether that means we added so many more people to our roster that we had to pay them $2.6 million. And you know, that's Bobby Roode's uh, Bobby Roode and Bobby Roode's music, or whether that is, uh, you know, putting more trainers is it the the cost of the pc as a whole and just you know the fact that they're bringing more people down there what that means but i i found that interesting that again you could say is corporate and others expanding talent costs from from between 2016 2015 
that's you know my my gut is yes but you know talent is a very broad word also so i wonder does that we we consider talent to mean wrestlers but talent could be a lot of different things it could be independent producers it could be uh the trainers at the the performance center so it yeah. it would be interesting but that's my belief is that essentially they're saying their their cost of serving that went up by two and a half million dollars last year which kind of goes with the idea that you know we've talked about which is they have a lot of people under contract right now i think they they gave the number of 185 active uh, uh superstars wow. under exclusive contract and then they'd say they're highly trained motivated independent contractors which i always find funny to say you have someone exclusively under your contract and they're an independent contractor and I guess contract right. and contractors go together, but the fact that it's exclusive kind of makes me laugh. Um, what did you make of their their desire to say that 90% of their active current main roster stars, such as Kevin Owens, Charlotte Flair, American Alpha, Alexa Bliss, and Sami Zayn, came from their developmental league? Right. Well, this is the narrative that's been kind of going around for the last few years since NXT really became what we know as NXT today, is that they're going to they're going to with the exception of maybe a few people like AJ Styles, they're going to sign these people up from the Indies or wherever they came from, and they're going to put them in NXT, and then they'll be in NXT for a little while, and then they'll pump them out into the main roster, and then they'll be able to say, look, look, look at what we've done with NXT. We've generated all this great talent. We developed them and taught them how to look into cameras and things like that, and now made them into WWE superstars. And ignoring the fact that there's this other, you know, what Triple H calls the indie undercurrent out there that, you know, where, where these people were quite talented already to begin with because obviously and that, that was don't know about that stuff no no and i thought it was funny that they said uh their talent development 40 percent of their recruits are coming from outside of the u.s increasing ability to create content for global markets which of course is is funny is to say well is Sami Zayn and kevin owens are they considered outside of the u.s talent or are they considered u.s talent because they were you know coming out of ring ring of honor or something so i'm always amused by that but um just yeah it's interesting to see the branding i always wonder what they consider to be from nxt so you know chris jericho goes down and does a match in nxt is he now from nxt or or are we actually talking people who spent their time down there and who is the 10 percent of the roster that they're saying was never in nxt obviously jericho undertaker uh, Brock, I guess, technically, though, they could say he came from their developmental territories. So I'm I'm just wondering what that 10% is. Right. You have to sit down and look at the roster. I don't know. I hope yeah. by NXT they just mean NXT or FCW and not like Randy Orton and John Cena came from OVW. So, <laughs> so that's developmental. Yeah, see, that would be my – yeah, exactly. If, if we say it's 185 and we're talking 10 – uh, 10%. Obviously, it's on 185 on the main roster, so it's a lot less than 18 people. But I'm sure we could brainstorm 10 people really quickly uh, without much challenge. Um, in terms of international breakout, you know, the business is still 74% North America, 11% UK, 7.5% Asia, 6% kind of Europe, uh, except for the UK, and then less than 2% Latin America. And that's always going to be the number that gets me is, you know, back in 2010, they were 4% Latin America and they continue to pull back from their Mexico market. And I get that you can make a lot of money overseas internationally, but it also seems to me like you're way underserving the opportunity that you have in, in Mexico right now. And I guess it's just the lack of a star that they really can put a face onto it. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the real is gone. 
Kalisto is not really getting over. Sin Cara was a mess. Oh, they still have a Sin Cara. <coughs> but, yeah, who did, we were waiting for uh, Lasombra to get over. We got a CN Almond. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was funny, too, when they mentioned and that's where, thing, where the know, talent is, came from. Is, is, is the style, of, you know, the Lucha style something that just doesn't translate as well to American wrestling or more like the, the type of American wrestling that WWE wants rather than maybe letting them do their own thing more? And, and when you see the list of what countries they say are talent from outside the U.S. came from, they mentioned China, Japan, Australia, Ireland, Scotland, and Poland. So they don't even mention Mexico once, which, again, I, I just think it's it's a little bit of an oversight. And then uh, maybe it's a stretch. But for me, when I heard that Lucha Underground is going to show up on Netflix, uh, I think it's the middle of February that season one and season one and two, something like that, is going to be available for on-demand right. viewing the on Netflix. 15th was the date going around. Yeah, I, I think that's huge in terms of you're talking about a Lucha Libre-style wrestling product. You're talking about a product that's showing up on Netflix and it's not WWE. And so it seems to me like, hey, you might want to realize that there's an opportunity here if uh, uh, there's something going on. But that that's just my take. And it's clear from them from a strategic point of view, uh, either the country managers are much better in the non-Latin American countries. And that's why the emphasis is there. But, you know, they're spending all this money and this investment in trying to hire Chinese talent right now. And it seems to me with the disarray that's going on in AAA and, and all these other places that, hey, there's an opportunity there and it's right up to your doorstep. But I guess that's not where they're going. Yeah, I think if we look uh, back WWE's... on attendance, I've, I've been looking at some of the old, I think we're going back all the way to 2006 or 2008, these spreadsheets that you've made where you've got all this attendance data and they're trying to make some sense out of. And something that we can look at, which I don't know off the top of my head, is so did Rey Mysterio make a positive difference on Mexican live events when he was around? Yes. <laughs> uh, the short answer is yes. Um, they, they did okay. monster house shows when they started going so to possible. Mexico. Well, it's possible with the right star. And so I remember when um, Dr. Lucha used to be on figure four, he would talk about, you know, the upcoming Mexico tour and how important it was just for even what match Ray was going to have. And it, it sounds so comical to me at the time where I was like, well, nobody cares what the house show lineup is, but he would talk about, no, in Mexico, they really do want to know who is Ray Mysterio going to wrestle that night. And, uh, yeah. you know, of course, the, when, when Alberto Del Rio was with them, he would come and they would have his father as Dos Caros, you know, seconding him and all sorts of other things. So they, they, they put a lot of effort in and they got a lot of money uh, because, you know, they had that kind of rich teenager demographic for a little while. It, it went down over time, but I still think there's opportunity there. Um, I think even in Japan, when I, they did those NXT shows in, in, um, in Osaka and they went to Tokyo last. They went to the Sumo Hall last year. Or I guess no, just anyway. They went to Japan and, and they had cards announced in advance because I think you know, especially when it comes to Japan and probably Mexico as well, the fans follow it differently or take it take it in a more sports-like manner than American fans do. I think so. So yeah, they want to see That's the card, a great of course. Point. Whereas yeah. you know, whereas here in, in the U.S., you know. People are just like, oh, it's just it's a, it's a show. Oh, it's a house show. Well, who cares? It's gonna be a, take your kids and everything. It'll be a fun night, but you know, we don't really care about what the card is. One one thing that I think uh, I've defined uh, WrestleNomics Radio to be is uh, the fact that I talk at length about WWE Studios, 
And uh, I'm not going to let them off the hook on this one because uh, <laughs> it has been going on for years and years and years. And so this year, WWE Studios did $10.1 million and they lost $200,000 on Obita. Um, last year, they did $7.1 million and they lost $1.5 million. Year before that, they did $10.9 million and they made half a million dollars. Year before that, they did $10.8 million. They lost $13 million. The year before that, they did $8 million and they lost five and a half. And the year before that was the year that they just like everything fell apart where they did like $21 million and they lost like $30 million on the uh, revenue because they took all the impairments. But uh, this year they released five films, four of them on DVD, one of them on the theater. Oh, it was it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was because they cha- it was before they changed their model of basically doing the just the direct to DVD stuff and just going to the um, of making partnerships with people. Uh, it, it came on like all the condemned and all the other films that where they had done a lot of the financing themselves. But uh, this year they released Countdown, Scooby Doo, and WWE Curse of the Speed Demon, Interrogation, Eliminators, and Incarnate. Uh, the I don't know if I remember. Anymore, I, I guess two of these films I had an idea about, right? There was, there's the film about the bomb, and it has Rusev with the gun, and then there's the, fi- and the yeah. Scooby-Doo film. Those are the two I remember. Um, but I didn't even realize that you know, three of these other films happened. Um, what I was fascinated by is what percent of their revenue do you think? I, I doubt you saw this number. What percent of their, of their revenue each year comes from last year's films? No idea. Uh revenue uh so what's funny is five million so less than that but what's funny is so this year they made 10.1 million three million came from the films they released last year that other seven million pretty much came from films that came before 2015 they make almost no money the year of the film releasing it it takes a very long time for them to recoup anything so it's very funny where like last year they did seven million and they made about two and a half million from the prior year's films. And then I discovered in 2014 they made four million dollars just from the movie The Call. So I know for a while I kind of ragged on the fact that they only had like a one million dollar stake in the call, but it ended up making them so much money. That's the only year they made a profit was basically because Holly Berry. So if they should induct anyone into their WWE Hall of Fame celebrity wing, it should be Holly Berry. Because she's the only person who ever made the WWE Studios money besides John Cena. And The Miz, I should mention. The Miz is the other guy. The three people, it's, it's a, it's a triangle of success. Holly Berry, John Cena, and The Miz. You put them in a movie together, it'd be incredible. And just don't let uh, Ric Flair induct her into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. You know, these direct-to-video releases that they're probably they're probably getting them distributed on, I don't know, maybe Netflix or Hulu or who knows what over the, over the years. So it's not just like, here, here's the movie, and within the year it's done or something like that. I could see these are these, these B-rate movies that just constantly get distributed and recycled for a few years after they come out. Does that make sense? But but still, they, they, they say they have $27 million in capitalized film production costs. And that's 32 release films, six films completed but not yet released, three films in production, and one film in development. And I just think about how much, how many millions of dollars that they, they've poured into WWE Studios over all these years, how little return they've had, how little prestige it's bought them. And then you think about something like, you know, 
uh, the U- UK tournament and the cost of something like that and the ability they've had to leverage it. Because if there was one thing that excited the uh, investors this time around, I should say the analysts, most of these people aren't actual investors, uh, the analysts this time around was the UK tournament. Everybody wanted right. to talk about it on the conference call. Like it was, you know, you'd think Tyler Bates was the second coming of Christ the way that that they were so excited <laughs> about him. So uh, I, I, I was really I, I, intrigued I, I, and I can't... The idea that Oh, we've got this UK tournament. Maybe they're going to make a deal with Sky Sports, and they're going to have additional, you know, actually distributed and televised programming in the UK, which will be mean more TV rights money. You know, we're getting back to that investor fantasy booking world, just like we did before, where it was the "What if you sold two hundred million dollars to Viacom and you did this or did that?" And so it's it's just entertaining to me when that happens. But uh, hey, it happens. So it, it's always possible. I, mean, I thought it was really. We've got World of Sport on. Um, what's the channel in the UK that they're on? ITV, and we've got you know what culture doing stuff. So I don't know. Maybe the TV industry in the UK might take it more seriously. Who knows? You know, that's it's kind of a segue. Uh, I wrote an article for What Culture. And uh, it, it was actually a two two pager, and so one page was about the the house show attendance, and I'll get to that in a second. But the other page was just about how awesome it was to be British, because uh, Tyler Bate, uh, he's the was the only undefeated person in January for like WWE television, where he won Tucker, Jordan Devlin, Wolfgang, Pete Dunne, and a uh, NXT win over Oni Lorkin. Uh, Jack Gallagher went like five and one that that month. Uh, Neville was was going like five and one as well so i was just really amused that being british apparently is the only way to get pushed right now um and nia Jax was the other person who did really well yeah, in january really. uh the british wrestling scene is on fire man yeah and and i think that's really been the big takeaway is it's funny to see uh a just the turmoil that actually happened in 2016 between flow slam starting up and between TNA completely revising itself and the UK getting television, UK having all these different companies. And none of that comes up when you're talking to investors about what is professional wrestling going to look like in the future. And they focus on, you know, such different things. And it's, it's always fascinating to me right. because it's, it's, it's not the the topics that, you know, I think um, are shaping the industry from that standpoint. Obviously there's a lot of financial things shaping WWE, but I think sometimes there's trends happening out there right now. And if you're really clued in, you would be asking them about this. But of course, you know they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. Right. I, I, I like I wrestle with that sometimes, you know, because we and I question myself whether we're so far in the bubble that that we think this stuff really matters. And WWE tries to project this image that none of it, none of that other stuff does matter. Only WWE matters, and they're so high up on the mountain they they can't see anybody else down there. Um, I don't know. I think maybe it's somewhere in the middle. I think I think some of those analysts, somebody should have asked them about Flow Slam, either this call or the previous one, because the Flow Slam story is real. I, I don't I don't think Flow Slam is about to do anything serious in the immediate future, but you know there there's a real business situation there where I think WWE was unhappy that they're doing pro wrestling. They, I think they knew that when when WWE invested the money into Flow Sports, and 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 now all of a sudden they have a relationship with WWN, which W was kind of, you know, forging an, an informal relationship with Gabe Sapolsky and WWN. And, you know, you got absolutely heard all that stuff in the, in the Observer about how they, they um, what WWE offered to 
try to maybe buy out the WN contract in exchange for for them, quote, being nice to them. That, that is WWE to, to Flow Sports. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of weird things happening. But but in the in the really big picture, I don't think Flow Sports is again. I don't think Flow Sports is about to become a real competition and a real threat to to WWE. Maybe not any more than as they would as they would say major sports leagues and other forms of entertainment that are maybe on, on television at the same night are a, a competition. But it is, you know, the product is, is similar. And and to me, that's that's where it's really interesting. Is it's to say they have eighteen thousand free subscribers right now, right? So they have eighteen thousand people that they're trying to convert into WWE Network subscribers, and then they have hundreds, if not you know millions, but hundreds of thousands of people that are non-subscribers or lap subscribers that they want to win back. And I don't think you're losing a lot of those lap subscribers, but they're not currently subscribing. You're saying. Yeah, like, you know, I know I have a friend right now who's listening to the show, and uh, uh, I know for a fact he's a great example of someone who for a while had the network, yeah, and he gave up on it. You know, he took a, took a, took a break from it. And so it's just like people like that, that, you know, they're, they're out there. And I don't think they're going out and they're, they're pursuing the flow slams of the world. But I do think no. it's kind of like when you have a really great product and you have no distribution. So you have a great product, no distribution, and then a major brewery wants to, you know, sell your beer. Well, you know what? You're going to sell so much more under that other backing than you probably were going to be able to do yourself unless you kind of did a grassroots efforts and really got big. Same thing happens with the Flow Slam. That's a way that WWE could acquire wrestling fans and be able to do something with them by by kind of working in that space. So I do think it bothers them in that sense that, you know, it's it's money, it's people who are willing to spend money. And it, when you think about free trials right now being down to 18,000 people, I guarantee you Flow Slam is in the thousands of subscribers and, you know, that's a marketplace that they'd care about. I don't think they want to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on it, but uh, they definitely don't want Flow Slam to be getting Ring of Honor anything like that for sure. So there, there is a, a give and take and a push and a pull that's coming with that for sure. Uh, one shining note in the annual report, I think was WWE shop. And I don't know if a lot of people kind of caught this, but WWE shop was up to 771,000 orders up from 590,000 orders a year ago. Year before that was 426 orders. Year before that was 320. Year before that was 307. Up and up the last five years yeah, and so they had they had basically maxed out at about three hundred and twenty thousand uh, orders a year in twenty thirteen. And what they did is they added Amazon UK as their European kind of distribution arm in twenty fourteen. And since then, it's exploded. And they they even said that they increased their distribution channels, including international territories, continued marketing efforts, and a broader assortment of products offered. Uh, the increase. In uh, the the OBITA this year was a percentage of the revenues was due to leveraging our fixed costs and improving fulfillment processes. And that is the most boring thing you can talk about on a wrestling podcast is how (laughs) fulfillment rates and fixed costs of logistics for a merchandising operation went well. But uh, working for a company, a CPG type company, you know, consumer product goods, uh, I can just say. I think that guy is is probably the the hero of the year. Is the guy who grew you know two two million dollars of profit out of the shop uh, sector by increasing orders by that much, but still staying profitable. And it says a lot about you know just kind of the opportunities for efficiency that WWE has, and that you know they're good at wrestling. 
I, people can argue that to death, but that's what they are. They're a, they're a good wrestling promotion company. The challenge they have is when they're in all these other streams of revenue and it, they're not always the best at that. And so sometimes it makes more sense to partner with an Amazon of the world and just let them do all the logistical stuff and you just take the money on the back end rather than you know fighting it all, every battle yourself. So is Sony think on Amazon a new, a new phenomenon for WWE? It, it's a European, um, they do it only in Europe as the fulfillment okay. partner. And yeah, I think it's helped a lot. And, and again, you know, people always ask me, do you have any merch numbers? Do you have any merch numbers? Cause they want to prove Roman Reigns is not a draw. Roman Reigns is a draw <laughs> or what, whatever it is. Did, did um, you read the Google shopping thing I wrote? No, I didn't. Please, please enlighten us about oh. this. And again, you know, I, I don't think I ever uh, properly introduced you. We have on the line here, fightful.com. Uh, the person who live tweeted from the Fightful Wrestling uh, Twitter handle this this time, uh, Brandon Howard, a longtime yeah. WrestleNomics analyst and writer. Yeah. They they are, but well, I feel like you know it's an easy <laughs> easy introduction. Um, so you yeah. you've been writing a lot of articles, and I'm assuming this is an article you wrote for Fightful.com. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, I I, I wrote an article, just some research spreadsheet that I've been working on for a while, looking at so. I, I look at Google Trends a lot, which is just something anybody can do that you can go to. I don't know. Google, the word Google Trends, you'll, you'll, you'll see it. You can type in any word, any person's name, any organization's name, and you can get a, a relative view of the, the, the progress of uh, Google searches. So you won't get an absolute number. They won't tell you this is X number of searches. It'll just tell you on a standardized 0 to 100 scale. So whatever the the highest point is will be 100 and whatever the lowest point is will be zero. And so you can look at that and you can look at one search topic and then you can put it up to like five. So I, I went through the trouble of like entering every W uh, roster member of notes and like exporting it to a, an Excel spreadsheet uh, just for the year 2016. And, and so, okay. So by the way, you can, you can look at Google searches and then you can look at other things like Google image searches and, and something else. But, I wanted to look at Google shopping searches. So this is, you know, when you go on Google, you can hit that shopping tab and you can search for whatever merchandise you can imagine. So in theory, this is, this is the measurement in theory of people searching for, you know, products related to name your favorite WWE superstar. All right. So, I, so I've got them all collected in a, in a spreadsheet to see, well, who's got the most Google shopping searches. So in theory, hopefully this will reflect who's selling the most merchandise at least give us a suggestion about it. And the results tell you that it's like John Cena way above everybody else. A few rungs below him is Roman Reigns. And a few rungs below that is, is everybody else, including like AJ Styles is like number three, which I thought was really impressive considering the small amount of time that AJ Styles has been with the WWE. Um, but you can, if you, if you probably, if you Google, I don't know, WWE, Google Shopping, Fightful, you'll, you'll find the article pretty fast. Oh, that's that's a great example of, and and this is something that you have really um, kind of. I, I would say you, me, and David Bixenspan have spent a lot of time just kind of reminding people that there's a lot of great free resources out there that you can use to find information about uh, professional wrestling. So be it, you know, well, some of them are not free, like Pacer, but uh, the court records online are there, the Freedom of Information Acts are there, and then, like you say, all these Google tools for using proxies. And they're good as anything yeah, all else. That, all and, that uh, stuff is just your guys. <coughs> I just read and, and become baffled. You guys are doing a great job. <laughs> 
But, uh, you know, I, I think the thing that's interesting, too, is the loot crate that WWE has started doing and trying to follow that in terms of which superstars they're putting in that to see kind of what direction are they trying to go with it in, in for appeal. And definitely AJ showing up, Dean Ambrose showing up. Uh, I was really disappointed with my first WWE loot crate, and so I, I ended up walking away from it. And then when I did a Twitter poll, uh, very few people were doing this loot crate, but almost nobody quit besides me is what what kind of my Twitter poll suggested. And so it's been interesting seeing things like Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose and AJ really being pushed in that and not so much, say, the Roman Reigns of the world, uh, just to kind of say they I think they have a better idea of, of at least who their audience is for those kind of collections. Um, and so it will be interesting to see if there's any kind of uh, uh, similarity. Same with John Cena. There's not a lot of John Cena stuff going into that. So I, I've been finding that really intriguing. And uh, we're already yeah, into our second hour here of uh, uh, WrestleNomics Radio. I just want to remind everyone the WrestleNomics Radio is sponsored by Build-A-Bear. Build-A-Bear Workshop now offering Beauty and the Beast, Beast and Bell Bears. How do I know? I just bought one for my wife. And that will be her Valentine's Day present. Uh, and and I might just be naming objects that are in the room with me right now, and these people might not actually be sponsoring the show, but you'll never know. Sorry, uh, didn't mean to interrupt, but you got to get and, your plugs uh, in, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you were mentioning about how you know, you got people who sometimes they want to know, ah, can, can you give me any merch numbers to find out, because you know, they want to confirm or, or deny whether Cena or, or Reigns is a draw. And another thing I found really interesting in that Google Shopping article was that you look at AJ Styles. So, so I was really blown away by this. So you, you look at AJ Styles, you can look back, going all the way back to 2008 with shopping. So you look at, you know, go back to the beginning of 2008, and it's like, you know, this, this line graph is like really low. It's really close to the bottom of the, of the graph. And then when he debuts in 2000, uh, early 2016 at the Royal Rumble, it shoots up. So, so I'm thinking, you know, you, you think of AJ Styles as this guy who came into WWE, who is, you know, this indie guy. He was a guy in TNA for many years. These guys are respected as, you know, one of the best wrestlers in the world. He had to run with New Japan. So it's, it's kind of a, 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 you know, and when we went into uh, WWE, a lot of people were very skeptical, probably myself included, that, you know, is, is WWE really going to push this guy who is a, a star on the end? He's a star in Japan. He's got a southern accent. He's too short. You know, is, is Vince McMahon really going to get behind this guy? And, you know, and, and, and here we are, uh, at least at, before the Royal Rumble this year, he was WWE champion for, you know, several months. So the W has, has taken him seriously. So I figured, you know, why did they accept AJ Styles and maybe not somebody like Daniel Bryan? Why, why, why didn't they get behind Daniel Bryan as quickly? So the point is, you, you compare the, the Daniel Bryan shopping metrics to uh, AJ Styles shopping metrics, and like AJ Styles is like way above anywhere that Daniel Bryan ever came close to. So it, it makes me think that if I can see this, they, they've probably got much realer you know, much more serious metrics and analytics to look at and that maybe they, you know, you know we, we can we complain sometimes about how well they're, they're pushing Roman Reigns too much or they're not pushing this guy enough. I would bet, even though there's still a self-fulfilling prophecy involved, right, you know, that the guy who you get, give attention to drive metrics or, you know, or vice versa. But maybe it, it, it's not just as simple as whether or not Vince or creative are, are listening to the crowd. Maybe they really got metrics, you know, to support things like giving Roman Reigns the type of presentation that they've given him. I agree. I agree. And that's something I've, I've talked about because you listen to the conferences like I do, and you'll hear George Berrios slip little things in about that. 
And sometimes it's like he's too clueless about wrestling as a whole to to yeah. know these things that this is too subtle to say. So he'll say, like, Sean I remember him mentioning, Rollins? we brought, yeah, Sean Rollins. But, the, you know, he, he talked about we brought Sting in because people started searching for Sting when they got their WWE Network subscription. And I think there's something to that where, you know, they have metrics that say things like, hey, Bill Goldberg's going to be worth a lot of money to you. And then you start to look at it and you say, oh, my gosh, he's worth a lot of money to us. And so it, it's intriguing because you do have those challenges. Like I say, we don't expect the WWE Network to really grow substantially between now and the end of the, the quarter. Uh, obviously, attendance has not been blowing off uh, the charts this year. But, you know, people will ask, is Brock Lesnar worth the money he is? And I think they're looking at these metrics and saying, well, you know, that's that's going to be part of it is that, uh, you know, we there's other metrics that help a lot. So it, it just I, and, I always and, find it interesting. And I'm sure that they've got things like not, not just like analysts related to the network, but they have things like, you know, the, the real merchandise stack that, you know, they, they know who's who's selling what merch, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh one other, and, and still, like I think uh, there, there should be a, a, you know, how much of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, if we give this guy lots of prominent television time, you know, is it like, of course he's going to sell merchandise? And and if we gave that opportunity to somebody else or shared that opportunity with others, would would you get, you know, an aggregate more revenue? You know. So we we'd be remiss if we did not also talk about uh, the unconfirmed elephant in the room, and that of course being Linda McMahon, and her bid to head the Small Business Administration. Uh, I, I haven't talked about it so much, but uh, I did put the in Defender some Freedom of, of Information guy. Act. Yeah, Defender of the Little Guy. I did some of uh, a FOIA request to the SBA about uh, Linda McMahon. and I got back a bunch of documents uh, this week that all said really? we have nothing to talk about Linda McMahon and that we have no record of a professional wrestling organization ever using SBA funds, uh, which was my other question wow. to them. Um, but I watched the full hearing that they had in the small business administra- uh, administration uh, hearing with uh, Cory Booker and everyone else. Did you watch that hearing live? I did. With uh, they, they, and, the most interesting, interesting moment was in Tammy Duckworth. I, for the most part, it was just people, People are pretty positive about her, you know, whether it was Democrats or Republicans. I guess the most interesting moment was when Tammy Duckworth, uh, the senator from Illinois, asked her or didn't really ask her, but mentioned having a talk with her in a meeting before the hearing about, you know, issues with WWE's 1099 contractor status. And 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 there's a, a mention about you know, monopolies with WWE being, you know, the dominant pro wrestling company in the world. Yeah, and for those that don't know, 1099 status is another way of talking about independent contractors. And so basically the the heavy use of independent contractors not having contracted employees, i.e. people that don't have to pay get health care benefits through their employer is specifically what she mentioned. And then she said monopolistic practices of WWE. And uh, we've been asking – you know, we we uh, you sent a note, I think, to her office asking for information. Haven't heard back. We found constituents nope. of hers. We had them send notes to the office, and yeah. so far, I don't think anyone's heard anything uh, from Tammy Duckworth's office about. Yeah, so uh, we're still hoping that we'll get a follow up at some point. That will say probably an email. That will be just a stock email saying thank you for contacting us. We are always concerned about the working rights of people, and uh, 
we're fighting more every day, you know, something really innocuous. But uh, in the end, uh, by the committee, Linda McMahon was uh, voted 17 to 1 to move ahead in the process. Uh, the most interesting part also probably was when out of the blue, kind of uh, approx to nothing, uh, Cook, uh, Cory Booker uh, from New Jersey just started cutting a promo uh-huh. on her and, and said that Triple H looked small and weak and maybe it was time for him to go to the, the g- Senate gym with him where he could give him some triple help. And uh, yeah. and that Stephanie seemed more intimidating than uh, Triple H did, which uh, it was just so weird. It was surreal. It was very surreal. And then, of course, he ended up not voting for her. Oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> it was, was he the he one did. who also I mentioned think... that he, he was um... – Oh, I, I went to wrestling. I went to NWA wrestling events when I was growing up. No, that was no. So, yeah. So, so Cory Booker didn't vote for Linda McMahon, and I think it was mostly a uh, a visibility thing where he was uh, trying to position himself, where as as being opposed to a Trump nominee without it actually stopping the Trump nominee from moving forward in this case. So I, I could be wrong on that, but that that's kind of the the optics of it that I took away. Um, the the other person was the rep from I think South Carolina, uh, a Republican there, and he specifically did mention going to NWA and other things and being a big yeah. fan. And uh, more or less, I mean, he was he was about a one sentence short of of quoting Matt Stryker and saying that he was marking out. Uh, but it was it was interesting for sure. And so her confirmation got held up pretty quickly because there was a lot of fights going on over the other nominees, you know, Betsy DeVos and uh, Rex Tillerson and um, Jeff Sessions. And now that those nominations have basically gone through, I, I highly suspect that she will be confirmed as uh, SBA administrator. It's not a very high profile position compared to almost any other nomination. And there's almost no women in Trump's cabinet. So I, I have a feeling that, that, you know, she will get a little bit more visibility than maybe a normal person who's an SBA administrator would get. But uh, I also don't expect to see a lot of uh, groundbreaking things from the SBA these next couple of years. So it'll be really interesting. Yeah, I, mean, they, I, they, I actually realized they, they paid enough that for it. I am an SBA. I am a small business owner. You are. I, I run a small business. Yeah, I run an improv company here in town. So technically, mm. I am an I have my own LLC. I have I am a small business owner. So it's time for me to start getting some uh, uh, McMahon time, FaceTime, as yeah. uh, maybe I'll invite her to come up to Minnesota, like everywhere else she's been invited. Would you recommend an, an indie promotion use the SBA if it was starting out? I would love to. <laughs> I think we would all love to know what the SBA is. I think until Linda McMahon uh, like, was nominated, ninety nine percent of wrestling get, fans had never heard of it. Like they do do some uh, money grants. Yeah, they were big after Hurricane uh, Sandy. They did a lot of work in in basically giving a lot of people like bridge loans and whatnot for disaster relief. So they they have been involved in a lot of that or arranging low cost or no no interest financing for things. And then of course they're always about helping people deal with government contracting. So the fact that, you know, if you want to be a government contractor, it can be a lot of hoops to jump through and the SBA can try to help you, you know, especially women minorities apply for that sort of thing. But there's a lot I don't know about what they do. And so I'm, I'm actually kind of interested to find out more. So who knows, maybe in a weird way, uh, Linda McMahon's nomination has is going to help my business acumen uh, in the end. So I, I'm happy about that. And Mike Sempervivi has been actually doing some great job of kind of just writing little yeah, freelance yeah. articles about, 
Linda's uh, work there. And so I, I do highly recommend people check out uh, Semper Vivi on Twitter and look up some of the articles that he was writing because he was doing some good coverage. And I feel that Wrestling Observer deemed that it was too political to kind of include straight up Linda talk that if, if it had nothing to do with wrestling. Really? And so he didn't have a place to kind of put it. So it, it was, just kind of lived out there Google on its doc. own. Yes, it was it was by Mr. Google, who was a doctor. And so that was a that was that was what ended up happening to it, just because he had put the time in, but he didn't have anywhere to put it. So it, it's sometimes tough to find a publisher in this this day and age. Uh, I did find a publisher when I was talking about the house show records for January. And one thing that really shocked me when I looked at the house show records was that for uh, January, SmackDown averaged 37 people, 3,700 people for house shows where raw averaged only about 3,200 people. So this is not the TV tapings, but for the house shows, SmackDown actually beat them. And if you think about the fact that John Cena is on that show, it makes sense. It also helped that they, they ran a, a place like Hildago, Texas, which they drew 4,800 people for, but they did, they actually averaged 3,200 people for those Monday night house shows where SmackDown is going up against Monday night raw. And that just astounded me. So when people ask me, does it make sense for them to run a house show on a Monday night? If you can average the same amount of people that raw is averaging on their other nights that they're running, I would say yes. If that number drops down to, you know, NXT levels where again, we're talking about they average less than a thousand people and they do a lot of shows that are less than a thousand people. Uh, when you really take yeah. the whole and number, that um, Florida shows, they only draw a few hundred, but yeah. So it, it just kind of shocked me that I was like, SmackDown is actually beating raw on the house show circuit. But the difference comes when you get to the actual TV, because on TV, Monday night, raw does about 7,800 people. And Tuesday night, SmackDown does about 4,600 people. So we're back down to those SmackDown numbers of, you know, 5,000 people on a, a TV taping. And that's not great. Because uh, you really do need those TV numbers to be a lot higher to uh, uh, make good money because you spend a lot of money on that. And, of course, house shows make sense because you can string them together and you can run a lot of them. It's the TV tapings that you really want to make sure that you're you're piling people into, uh, specifically so you can have a hot crowd, too. It really does make a difference on the, uh, the, the full picture. So just from a, a quick WrestleNomics attendance standpoint, I thought that was really interesting. Obviously, they drew probably you know, 40 some thousand people for the Royal Rumble at the Alamo Dome. And it will be intriguing to see whether or not they break that out at all in the next, uh, in the January uh, results when we finally see those or whether they just kind of leave it as a Q1 number, even though it's, it's going to obviously be very distortive compared to any other event. I, you convinced me that they wouldn't because it's, it's in January and it's, it's not going to be, but it's, it's, it's not like in the future they're going to, you know, if they, they might run Royal Rumble again in the stadium, but it's not going to be jumping back and forth between quarters like WrestleMania does, which, which, by the way, they do break out WrestleMania because WrestleMania, you never know if it's going to be in March or in April, and that, and that will determine whether it's going to be in Q1 or Q2. So, you know, it, it makes it harder to compare. And, and I think that's the key is that's a great example of something that a investor really should ask is to say, hey, I see your, your Q1 number or your January, your Q1 number is really high for live event attendance domestically. Now, doesn't that include Royal Rumble? What would that number be without the Royal Rumble? And just something yeah. like that, you know, I, I do think is a fair question to ask because it, it is a distortive number in this. And we, we definitely see it with WrestleMania, just how distortive that can maybe, be. Um, but yeah, but again, 40,000 people. We'll quarterly report, one of those notes underneath the live event section, the Royal Rumble drew X amount of paid, paid attendance. 
So uh, I don't have a ton more of notes that I, I had. I think one note I had was there's 7,725 holders of record of Class A stock and three holders of record of Class B stock. Uh, so we yeah. know, you know, it's Vince McMahon and probably just those family trusts, I'm guessing, are the only things left unless it's it's Stephanie or or I don't even know if Hunter can technically hold that stock. No, I don't think he can. I, I, I think the three are Vince, Linda and Stephanie. Because Linda still has, and like I don't even know if Linda. I think Linda's getting like rid of her. Is that like last I checked? When I when I was do, I did all this research of like when she was um when she was nominated to be the, the SBA to to go to the SBA, and she has like five hundred fifty thousand shares of, of B stock. Stephanie has like two million, and Linda has like thirty five million shares. So the, like that was mm. based on. Uh, that was, I don't know, I was going through a lot of SEC documents and I contacted WWE and because I was trying to also figure out whether or not Shane had any and it, it appeared that he did not. And then to read that the other day where it says there's only three holders of, of B-stock that seemed to tell me that Shane definitely doesn't have any. I was wondering if that had ever been stated like that before, that there's only three holders of, of B-shares. B well, every year they say how many holders there are, and in the past there's like seven or nine uh, because there's a lot more trusts that were out there right. too. Um, okay. And the other thing is Linda, when she was being confirmed to the SBA, she actually published an ethics document where she outlined what she was going to divest as if she were oh. to be uh, successful. And I thought she might have said she was getting rid of her WWE stock, but I could be wrong on that. I know she said she would not confer with the company on any of their business initiatives which I don't think will be hard for her to uh, walk away and stay away from. But I think your Shane note there is really important because people still, I mean, I still talk to people who think Shane, because he is on SmackDown is part of the executive structure for WWE. And it's, it's hard to kind of get through people's skulls that no, Shane is not part of WWE from a corporate standpoint. He uh, probably is not going to be in the near future here. And additionally, uh, a lot of crazy stuff has been happening with his old company uh, that used to be, uh, uh, what was it? Not You Shout, something like that. Uh, but they re renamed demand. themselves We You On Demand. It's no longer You On Demand. It's now called WeCast. And uh, they had a whole kerfuffle where they got rid of their CFO. But that stock shot up like 20% last week. And so... I wouldn't be surprised if it was some crazy insider trading stuff because it, it's like a, it was not a very valuable stock, kind of a penny stock that was shooting up. But it was really intriguing to me that, uh, uh, you know, that his his whole old operation here has been is actually been exploding lately in value. So he might finally actually so make is, back all that money on the shares a, he gave them. Executive. Is he still an employee with that company or is I think he's still on the board of directors. Right. But he is he, exactly. is he doing anything when he's not appearing on W television. <laughs> Uh, as far as I know, he does not have a company position with WeCast, a.k.a. You On Demand, and uh, he is on their board of directors. He was their former chairman. I think he's now the vice chairman because they basically got a superstar investor, and then he he basically bought the chairmanship. And so uh, now he is just a um, – yeah, he's just a, the, the like the vice chairman, and he has all these loans to the company that they owe him, and so they might actually be paying them all back now. So uh, kudos to him. I bet you anything he has his own production company, and he has his own you know sneaker company or something else out there. I don't think he is, is he you know completely with business. Less. That's the question. 
Yeah, that was a fascinating disclosure, wasn't it? When the uh, the Vice article Ian Frisch uh, uh, wrote about that, and uh, you know, I yeah. I spent a lot of time talking to Ian about stuff, and he he just told me he had a couple juicy scoops, and that was one of his juicy scoops for sure. But I never knew about that before it happened, so I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> so I'm I'm chatting here with uh, Brandon Howard. Uh, you can call us at six four six 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 eight two one seven one. We're probably going to wrap it up soon, though, unless we have any other callers. What were some of the other uh, things you were thinking about for 2017? Obviously, we're going to get more TV rights. We're going to have a lot more touring going on because SmackDown is going to be an independent brand for more than the year than it was a year prior. NXT has already shown that it can be a bigger brand, so we're going to see a ton of events. I mean, I think I calculated they ran 50 events in January. And, you know, obviously... Wow. You're not going to always do that, but 50 times 12 is 600 events. So if you were to count wow. everything, that's a heck of a lot. Uh, I don't think that's what they're going to do. You know, I calculated they did that 22 house shows event, in January. Right? Yeah, it was 22 house shows of Ron SmackDown, 11 apiece, uh, TV tapings, and then 15 NXT and the two UK tournament shows. <coughs> Excuse me. And the pay-per-view. So, I mean, it was an unusual yeah. month. Uh, but also, you know, they run two pay-per-views most months, so it's it's not that that different. Sometimes they cut back on house shows a little bit on the months on the weeks that they're running pay-per-views, um, and obviously NXT gears up for quarterly stuff, so they're a little bit heavier once a once a quarter than they are the other months. So I, I do think yeah. maybe it might be a little heavier for NXT than normal, but still fifty. It just kind of blew me away when I thought about that number. I thought, you know, we're going back to the days of the '80s where they ran 600, 700 <laughs> shows a year. If they do that, and that's going to be a this logistical a, nightmare, uh, just in terms of kind how of many people you need. Talking about on the, on the conference call, they said, you know, the, the brand extension is going exactly how we thought it would. The big wheel keeps on turning. That they're, I think, in 2017, they're they're going to run even more shows than than they did in 2016. Obviously, and like you're saying, they already ran 50 shows in January. Um, you know, we had that they projected they're going to make 100 million dollars in Alida. I, I would say, considering how accurate they've been in their projections on network subscribers from quarter to quarter that I, I think they've got a pretty reliable handle on making projections like that. So I think there's every reason to believe that they're probably going to make a hundred million dollars and leave that at the end of 2017. Um, I was wondering, the, they did throw out. About... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say they did throw out one statement and I felt like it was one of these statements they say, that they mean one thing and people interpret it a very different way where he's talking about the success of 205 live, which in itself is already comical, but the success of 205 <laughs> live in the cruiserweights. And then he said something like, we're going to be doing more touring with them. And people took that to mean that they're going to start doing independent cruiserweight show touring. And I'm pretty dubious of that. I think they're really just inferring that NXT is going to tour more and the cruiserweights might be part of that. Uh, but yeah. I don't think we're going to see a lot of independent 205. I mean, th there's certainly an argument to be made that if you were taping 205 Live somewhere else besides SmackDown and you were doing it as an independent taping and you did it in a very small venue, you could kill it. You know, if you're going to Rochester and Buffalo and you want to play, you know, a 2000 seat yeah. armory or a 1000, you could you could fill it up. You could have a rabid crowd. You could make it awesome. But when you're playing a 5000 people there for SmackDown, 1,000 leaving in a 12,000 seat arena. That's where the problem is right now. So uh, yeah. if there are going to tour 205 live, please God, I hope they have a plan where they're going to Helsinki or it's going to be on Iceland every week or something. 
No, that, that's just Vince talking about how they're, they're using all this talent in so many different ways and the brand which allowing them to do so much. Uh, I, I, know, I know there's kind of a to-do about when uh, WWE posts those most popular shows on the network every week, which I'm kind of dubious of because, I mean, for one thing, it's just like a top ten list and there's no – who knows if there's any real metrics driving these things or if they're just, you know – handpicked by somebody because they want these things to be watched by people. But, but anyway, there was kind of a to do because 205 Live was, was you know, dropping down in the rankings. And so presumably wasn't having very strong viewership, which of course WWE must be aware of if, if that's true and would be very hesitant, I would think, to, to try to run independent 205 Live shows. And, and the other part of it is it's like Twitter trending right so there's a formula that says when the delta is so much that's when you trend on twi- twitter so when we say it's the hottest shows you know it could just be that the delta is this or that uh so it, it's hard to say um same thing you know i remember taking away uh this year's royal rumble we had goldberg we had lesnar we had undertaker it'll be interesting to see if they have to make a financial disclosure about uh increased talent costs because in the past, when, for instance, The Rock was working, you know, with CM Punk, things like that, we would see a little disclosure basically saying that they had to pay out more on Royal Rumble fees uh, because, hey, if you're going to put The Rock in, you got to pay him a lot of money and it's going to cut into your OBITA. And so it'll be interesting to see whether Q1 has a note about, you know, maybe having to pay more for this quarter or not. So that's another thing for 2017. But the reason they can say they're going to hit $100 million is because so much of it is guaranteed in TV rights. And that's why it's so shocking yeah. when you think that 10 years ago, they almost hit $100 million, and they had nowhere close to that TV revenue. And so from a right. – you know, you could say from a sheer momentum standpoint, from an interest standpoint, if you're just hitting your same revenue number now, but now so much of it's coming guaranteed, it's frightening to think about what that says about the interest level of your product today. Um, but, yeah, was, you know, China's going to save everything. Yeah, we know that. I was, just, I was just looking at the big, of course. I was just looking at the big master uh, trend, trending schedule before calling in. And you look at TV rights revenue, or TV, I think it's TV rights OBITA, right? And you, if you give them the TV rights OBITA that they had in like 2000, 13 before they made the deals, it's something like, I don't know, $65 million or something like that. If you stretch that across every year after 2014, like this company would be making, would be making like $20 million in OVA. So they wouldn't, would be like, you know, a fifth as profitable. Just to give you an idea of just how much <coughs> TV rights, you know, help this company out and float them. I mean, from a profit standpoint, they pretty much doubled their OBITA on television rights. And if you had OBITA on your bingo square right now, you've won. Um, but uh, yeah. they pretty much doubled since 2014. And that, that's shocking when you think about it, that in two years you could make that division twice as profitable as it was. But that's how much uh, of a step change it was when they did their uh, renegotiation because they went from 62 million OBITA in 2014 to 120 million OBITA this year. And even higher if you... Or, yeah, a little bit different if you include that $15 million cost one way or the other way. But uh, I, I thought it was just fascinating just how much money they're making on that. We can talk about WWE results all day long. If you are interested in them, go to corporate.wwe.com, check out the investors link, and they have lots of stuff there. Or go to sec.gov, type in uh, company finder WWE, look at the the things there. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Mukigana. You can follow Brandon at Decorative Drop. Um, Brandon, do you got any articles you're working on right now for Fightful? I'm working on an article full of like, it's full of, so I wrote an article a couple of days ago, just a, a report 
of so what came out of the, the earnings report, and I'm working on another one right now with some actual analysis and predictions. Um, before we go, do you have a prediction on WrestleMania subs, free and or paid? Ooh. Oh, that's an interesting one. I'm going to have to, you know, they did say that they're going to hold a call the day after WrestleMania so that they can give us the uh, uh, WrestleMania numbers, which is good because they've been doing that in the past. And I think, uh, you know, they, they would feel like uh, if they didn't do that, that would cause a huge problem. I'm trying to buy time right now where I pull up last year's WrestleMania numbers so I can just look again at exactly what they were. You know, I have like the numbers from 2014 blazoned in my head. But I struggle now with, uh, you know, where, where we were in 2016. So do you have it on, on the top year, of your head? Last, last year paid was one, 1,454,000 with 370,000 free. So, so a total of like ah, so yeah. over 1.8 million. 1.824, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're, we're obviously going to kill the 1.454 number because we're at that now today. And that's pre-WrestleMania bump. So, yeah. you know, what are you going to be at that's higher than that? Well, they basically grew about 130,000 last year, uh, 2015 to 2016. And that was on the backs of that pre-WrestleMania campaign where you had so many people sitting in that other other bucket. So if you were to say you can recapture that, I'm, I'm feeling like maybe 1.62 would be the day of yeah. uh, type number. Yeah. But, I you know, like I... Maybe maybe one nine with free. I wonder if they're gonna maybe maybe there's an internal goal for like two million free unpaid. That's you know that's certainly the challenge. I I would almost say at this point, if you're WWE and you just got the stock bump that you got now, if you go out there and you send out a press release saying you hit two million, and then it turns out that yeah. it's all free, your yeah. stock's gonna fall through the floor. So I think they're they they gotta <laughs> be really careful with what they do on that, because I do think that people are going to see through the smoke and mirrors on that because it's great to say 1.8, because that's a number that everyone can believe. But the moment you start talking about 2 million at this point, people very quickly say, well, that sounds funny. And then they look into it. So I, I think there's kind of a, a, a liar's credibility that you can exceed that threshold. And that's very dangerous for you. And that is, that's mm -hmm. the danger that WWE has in my opinion. So, but you're right. They, they mail. There's been a credibility problem with this company for a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. But, uh, well, I'm glad you called in. Some reason having you call in helped my voice quite a lot. Don't know whether that was the drugs, the dogs, the alcohol, yeah. what, what it was speaking, but my voice <laughs> is, is improving by a lot. So uh, I'm, I'm going to sign off now. Uh, we got a good hour 40 of this, and uh, this will probably be uploaded to VoicesOfWrestling.com where uh, both friends of the site and uh, constituents of Illinois and Texas, respectively, um, and uh, from some constituents in New York and a constituent in Minnesota, uh, we bid everyone adieu. Thank you so much for calling in, Brandon. Have a great day. Thanks. Why pay hundreds more in taxes and fees on your wireless bill? 
Introducing T-Mobile One, now with taxes and fees included. Get four lines for 40 bucks each per month with AutoPay. Switch your family of four to T-Mobile and get a $600 prepaid card. It's kind of like a refund on the taxes and fees you paid to those other guys last year. Don't wait. Visit a T-Mobile store. Top 3% of data users greater than 28 gigabytes per month may notice reduced speeds. Sales tax and regulatory fees included. Effective with February charges via prepaid MasterCard card. See store for details. Why pay hundreds more in taxes and fees on your wireless bill? Introducing T-Mobile One, now with taxes and fees included. Get four lines for 40 bucks each per month with AutoPay. Switch your family of four to T-Mobile and get a $600 prepaid card. It's kind of like a refund on the taxes and fees you paid to those other guys last year. Don't wait. Visit a T-Mobile store. Top 3% of data users greater than 28 gigabytes per month may notice reduced speeds. Sales tax and regulatory fees included. Effective with February charges via prepaid MasterCard card. See store for details. In a world of 1 million wrestling podcasts, there is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.